the words of the Heidelberg Catechism before we begin our scripture reading. We are going to confess together uh, questions 93, 94, 95 uh, from Lord's Day 33. We begin now the Ten Commandments, and we will consider these Ten Commandments through the coming weeks and then on to consider the Lord's Prayer. Uh, this is the gratitude section of the Catechism. So, Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, how are these commandments divided into two tables? The first has four commandments teaching us how we should live in relation to God. The second has six commandments teaching us what we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayers to saints or to other creatures, that I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts alongside of the only true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. And now turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, and we will read uh, what's been known as the Shema, the oldest creed in history. So Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. In these words of what has been called the Shema, that's the first word in Hebrew, Shema meaning hear, well, we hear the oldest creed in recorded memory. And with these words, the people of God throughout history have not only been told who they are and what they should do, but they've also been told whose they are, and what He has done for them. Their whole identity has been grounded in these words. In confessing this creed, the church universal have been knit together with the God of whom this creed is about. We hear in these words that the Lord is our God. The Lord is your God. 
When you look in your Bibles and you see that word Lord with all capital letters, well, that's the sacred name which God gave to His people Israel. It signifies not merely His self-sufficiency as the great I Am, as the One who is, but it is also the name that He gave uniquely to Israel. While other nations have their gods, like Baal or Ra or Zeus, God revealed Himself to be Israel's God. He covenantally bound Himself to them. By giving them His special name, He reassures them that His promises are for them. The One who made all things and continues to hold them together and who continues to guide them for His purposes has taken a special interest in His people. And He has taken care of His people, working all of those things throughout history for them and to His glory. Just as He delivered Israel from the jaws of Egypt, all of His purposes for them will come to pass. And nothing will get in His way or stop Him from caring for them as His own child. He is absolutely committed to them as His beloved people, for He is their God and they are His people. But how should we understand those words, the Lord is one? Certainly it means that He is the only God that exists. All other gods are false. All these pagan deities that we see around the world, they're only the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. They are these tiny impotent gods, so-called, of wood and of stone that men have fashioned after their own image and likeness. But when the Shema says that the Lord is one, it is also saying that the Lord is one for Israel. Other nations may have their gods, but the Lord is the only one for Israel. They are to serve the Lord their God, Yahweh, alone. Since God has dedicated Himself to His people by giving them His name, well, He expects them to similarly dedicate themselves to Him at the expense of all other gods, indeed, at the expense of all other things that might challenge His place as first in their hearts. In response to the God who has and will continue to provide all things for His people, they are not only to see Him as the only God that exists, but they are to love Him uniquely and above all things. For this reason, the Shema continues by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. For God to be the only one for Israel means that they are to love Him and to serve Him and to worship Him with their whole being. In all ways and above all things, He was to have their whole, their complete devotion. So we read in verse 7 that for the Jews, the love of God was to be all-consuming. In everything that they did, they were to have this love of God before them, guiding not only the work of their hands, but even the, the intentions that laid behind those works. The love of God was to be at the forefront of their minds, in the seat of their hearts, in the depths of their souls. So whether it was in the interactions they had with their children, whether in their sitting or in their walking, in their lying or in their rising, everything they did was to be flavored with the love of God. It was to this end that in following verses 8 and 9, Jews erected various reminders of the Shema. They made what is called tefillin, these small leather boxes that contain the words of the Shema within. They would bind these around their foreheads and around their arms. And they also had something called mezuzah or mezuzot, pieces of parchment that also contained the words of the Shema. And they would 
put these on their doorposts and on their gates. And so with these reminders everywhere, the whole lives were oriented by the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And yet, even with all of these reminders, you know, it comes as a shock to us that the Jews could so quickly be led astray to other gods. How is it that Jews, they could witness firsthand the might of Yahweh over all the foreign deities time and again and have all of these reminders constantly before them? Well, how is it that with all these things, they could go after these false gods? As we read in Scripture, it becomes very evident that the most persistent, the most pervasive problem for God's people is idolatry. In fact, we can even say that the whole history of redemption is a history of idolatry. It is that sin which precipitated the fall. Think about it. Was it in the eating of the fruit, that forbidden fruit in the garden, in and of itself, that led to the fall of Adam and Eve? Well, what did that satanic serpent say? What did they... What was the intention behind their act of eating that fruit? In eating of this fruit, Satan said to them, they would be like God. Instead of trusting in the Lord with all their heart, they began to lean on their own understanding, making themselves up to be a God to themselves. And the impulse to be God did not cease with the fall. Just a few chapters after that fall, after that judgment day, where they are cast east of Eden, We read about that Tower of Babel that was built in order to invade heaven. It was Babel's attempt to usurp God and establish themselves as the lords of creation. And while Israel was confronted, we read about years later in Exodus, they were confronted by a pantheon of Egyptian gods with a pharaoh who saw himself as an avatar of the gods. Well, God delivered them by putting to death all of these false gods through the plagues that fell upon Egypt. And yet they still turned away to a golden calf. As soon as they took possession of that promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey which God had delivered them to, well, at that point, the Baals and the Asherim and the Moloch, they jockeyed for Israel's attention and worship. And though Israel continuously turned to these gods, God never abandoned them. He's faithful to His covenant. He's faithful to His people. He does not leave them nor nor forsake them. We see this in the book of Judges and in the book of Kings, how God, despite Israel's numerous failures, how He worked wonders and delivered them time and time again. And yet, they still persisted in their idolatry. It was their idolatry that ultimately led them to their destruction and exile. uh, If we want to read something this Lord's Day, we can look at, for example, the book of Hosea and see how the people who were the special chosen people of God's short book, that in their idolatry, he, he judged them and denounced them and really executed them by sending them into exile, by going after these false gods. Even when they're in captivity, after just receiving this sentence of death and being taken into Babylon the temptation to commit idolatry persisted. They were told to bow down to the statue. You might remember this in the book of Daniel. Idolatry, it, will, it remains a constant threat for God's people. It, can, it remained a threat for the Jews when uh, Greeks and Romans invaded their land. 
And it remains a threat for all of us today. We are told in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And as the catechism points out, the first commandment has two sides. There is a positive side and there is a negative side. There is things prescribed by it and there are things proscribed or prohibited by it. The first commandment prohibits idols. We must reject all false gods. It requires us to love and to know God, to serve Him, to look for Him in, for everything that we need, to place our trust and our confidence in Him alone. And even when life is difficult and painful and when we are full of fear, the Catechism tells us that we humbly and patiently wait for God as He works all of our pain, all of our frustrations, all of our fears mysteriously together for our good. In other words, we are to live the Shema. The Shema, it wasn't just for Israel. It was for the whole church, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament and in the church today. Like Israel, the first commandment calls us to love God comprehensively with our whole being. In fact, we could go so far as to say that the best way for us to reject idols is by loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we love God completely and absolutely, there's just no room for these false gods. So to love God with all of our heart, it means to love God with all of our faculties. The heart was seen as the governing center of our life. It entailed not just our emotions, but also our intellect and our will. According to Craig Troxell, he says, everything we think, desire, choose, and live out is generated from this one controlling source and is governed from this one point. Meanwhile, when we hear the words that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our soul, well, the soul was seen as the life source, the very being of the person, and the might or strength by which we are to love God refers to our abilities and our resources. Therefore, to love God with all of our heart, soul, and might means to love Him with everything we are, with everything we have, and in everything that we do. It means to give complete, unswerving, and absolute devotion to God. And so, keeping the first commandment for us means primarily loving God comprehensively and exclusively. We are not to give our love or our worship to other gods. But while we may be tempted to think that the other gods might simply refer to you know, foreign deities, we should also realize that there are those things that we make into gods, things which we realize are actually quite helpful to us. And so, that, though we might not explicitly or formally give our ultimate love and devotion to those things, Cars, we have our vacations, our sports team, our political party. We fixate on what's happening in politics and in economics. Instead of trusting in God's invisible hand of providence, we fixate and obsess over the invisible hand of the market. These are good things that are gifts from our Creator. But in enjoying these blessings, they can subtly become little idols. Things that we store up in our hearts. Things that we unwittingly give our devotion, our affections, our undivided attention to. In giving these things our love, we become functional idolaters. But the most widespread and dangerous form of idolatry we find today is the one found in that first sin. It lurks beneath the surface of everything we do. And sometimes it rears its ugly head. We have become worshippers of ourselves We have become obsessed with ourselves, fixated on things like our self-esteem and our self-image. Think about it. Social media, it comes with the temptation of feeding into our pride, our self-love, our self-devotion. 
We take pictures of ourselves and we only post those pictures that are particularly nice looking, aren't they? We take pictures of our food as if anybody cares about that. We take pictures of our kids. I'm sure they're cute. I get it. We divulge in a constant stream of consciousness and sharing with people everything that we think and desire, everything that we enjoy and everything that we hate. Trying to shape and influence how our family or how our friends or even complete strangers might perceive us. Now as an aside, the irony here is that the more, self, uh, the more focus we become on our self-image and our self-improvement, the more self-conscious we become and the less self-esteem we end up having because when we fixate upon ourselves, we come to realize we just aren't that good. I'm not saying, however, that social media is evil. I'm not saying that self-esteem and self-love and building those things up are bad either. But there is a danger for us to become obsessed with ourselves, like narcissists, that you know, ancient mythical Greek figure who saw his own reflection and fell in love with himself. This is an opportunity for us to measure ourselves against God's law. The law is a mirror revealing to us how we really are, showing us how far we really do fall short. The first commandment calls us to examine ourselves. So in hearing these words, reflect and think and examine whether you have slipped into serving these idols. Idolatry is not just a a problem that we read about in Scripture. It's a human problem. While Israel had tangible and visible experiences of God's deliverance, we find in the New Testament that we have become witnesses of the fullest revelation of God. We are witnesses to the greatest act of redemption in Christ. The Son of God, uh, the second person of the Trinity, became dwelt Uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. He died for us. He was risen from the dead for us. And in Him, we too have newness of life. And the Spirit has been poured out into our hearts by which we now can cry, Abba, Father. Instead of worshiping at a temple far away, we have become living temples of God. This is a redemption a miraculous work of God that is far greater than anything He ever did among Israel. That is how the New Testament describes our salvation. And yet, in view of this wondrous work of God in our lives, we are too quick in going astray, prone to leave the God we love. But why? Why is this such a persistent problem for us? Why is it that we time and again, fall into this sin and this error, especially when we have proclaimed to us the gospel every week, law and gospel, telling us how we ought to live, telling us who Christ is, what He's done for us. How is it that in view of these mercies of God, we continue to fail and to sin? Because as Calvin puts it, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Our fallen condition has made an industry of false worship. Our hearts are constantly churning out false gods that we devote ourselves to. If the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, well, is it too much of a stretch for us to say that the first and greatest sin is to commit idolatry? Giving the love that we owe to God to something else? Loving the creature and serving the creature rather than the creator who loves us, cares for us. As Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. 
And certainly it's the case that we truly treasure God above all things. That's our deepest conviction. That's our faith. But there's still those functional idols that we sometimes slip into. Slip into servicing. The most dangerous word in this context is that little word, and. I do love God. And I love my children. I do love God. And I love fill in the blank. What, has, what is the thing that is tempting you? That calls your attention? Even perhaps right now, that thing that's in the back of your mind as you're listening, that you're thinking about, saying, when I get home, I'm going to do this thing. When I get out of here, this is what I'm going to do. What has become your functional idol? You must be careful with that little word, and. Because God requires in the first commandment that we love nothing besides Him. He shares His glory with no other. He is a jealous God. He's jealous of His glory. Jealous of His image bearers. Jealous of those whom He has loved and saved. And so did Jesus say, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and family. You cannot serve God and food, whatever it is. You cannot have divided affections. You cannot give divided worship. Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So how are we doing in these things? How do we measure up against God's law? When you find yourself faced with difficulties, do you say, I can take care of this myself? Thank you very much. Or do you run to those little things for comfort, consolation? Or do you turn to God in prayer? How are we doing? Well, if you're like me, we find ourselves at the end of ourselves, unable to keep this law. But there is hope. Because God never leaves us to our own devices. Through faith, He has joined you to the one who kept all of the commandments of God perfectly. Jesus, the God-man, He kept that first commandment. He never gave in to the various idols that would call for His affection. He loved God with all of His heart and with all of His soul and with all of His might. While we succumb to the temptations of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, Jesus said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. When Satan came up against him, tempting him, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. Jesus responded to those satanic tests by saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when Satan offered glory to Christ, revealing to him all the kingdoms of the world, saying, all of this will be yours if you just bow down to me. What did Jesus say? You shall worship the Lord your God alone, and Him alone you shall serve. While we, like Adam, are grasping after that forbidden fruit, trying to make ourselves gods, it was Jesus who, while deserving all praise, glory, and honor, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, dying for us, 
In love of God, he submitted himself to all that the Father gave him to do and fulfilled all righteousness. And yet, even while we were exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator, Christ died for us. He was raised for us. And through faith, we are united to Him. So that all the perfect law-keeping of Christ is now yours. So that God now sees you as having perfectly kept His whole law. Yes, indeed, even that first commandment. Even while we continue to fail in keeping that first commandment, in Christ, we have imputed to us that righteousness by which God sees us as perfect first commandment keepers. We have obtained a righteousness as good as His own in Christ Jesus our Lord through faith. And God does still more for us. He has given to us Christ so that not only are we declared righteous, but He has also given us Christ so that we may be made righteous gradually throughout our life, becoming more and more holy and more and more like Christ. He has joined you to Christ in whom you now may keep His law. He has given you His Holy Spirit who empowers you to keep His law. He has made you to be a new creation so that you may now desire and are now enabled to keep this law. Like the Jews, we also have been given Various reminders that call us to keep the first commandment. Reminding us to forsake our idols and to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might. Yet while the reminders uh, that the Jews would use, the tefillin and the mezuzot, while all, those, uh, all that they could do is tell and remind the Jews about their duty to love God, well, God has given us reminders that not just remind us to to love Him, but also give us the strength, the power, granting to us the ability to, uh, to keep God's law by directing our gaze, by directing our faith to Christ. These reminders also unite us more and more to Christ. And these reminders which God has given to us are His means of grace. There's His objective means of grace, the preaching of His Holy Word and the Law and in the Gospel. And there is also the pure administration of His sacraments, the Lord's Supper and the Holy Baptism. These things we've considered the last couple months. God has also given to us what J.B. Fesco calls the subjective means of grace. He's given us prayer by which we, in trust, forsaking all of the things, turn to our Father who is in heaven. And in turning, our, uh, turning to Him in our prayers, we have find that He hears our prayers. We have an intimate communion with our God. And in addition to prayer, we also have the communion of saints, the body of Christ on earth. We have one another. We see one another. We see the image bearers of God. To bear God's image means to love what He loves, to do what He does. So when we look upon one another, we support one another. We care for one another, reminding one another that even when we fail in this first commandment, that there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ, that you have the Spirit to look to Christ and and find that you have both the righteousness right now imputed to you, and you are being made righteous, becoming more like Christ, who kept the law perfectly. Therefore, beloved, in view of this marvelous grace, with hearts overflowing with gratitude, find your rest in God. 
Look to Him and praise for what He has done for you. Serve Him. Worship Him. Love Him. Turn away from those little things that compete for your love. Because as, as good as an, and enjoyable as those things are, it's only when we see those things as particular expressions of God's goodness toward us that are meant to remind of His liberality toward us, that when we remember their purpose, that they then are to be used with respect and moderation. It's only then that they can truly become gifts, and only then that we can truly enjoy them as gifts. And it's only in this way alone, by looking to Christ, that the idolatry of ourselves is overturned. And where loving ourselves has actually become sanctified. As the theologian G.K. Beale says, there is a good self-love that seeks what will truly make us happy. It is loving ourselves by desiring to become what God wants us to become. Loving God is the best way, or rather the best expression of self-love. For in loving God, we are truly happy. That is our chief end. He has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. These words of the oldest creed, they have been preserved by God throughout the millennia of His church. And these words now come down to us. These are the words that we ought to cherish because while they tell us about who we are and how we should live, the central idea of them is that God Yahweh, the Lord, who created heaven and earth, is your God. He is your covenant Lord, who has dedicated himself to you, and is for you, and with you, in an intimately, a uniquely intimate way, especially in Christ. He is the only person who kept this commandment perfectly. And it's only in him that we now keep this wonderful command. And so in view of his goodwill toward us, in response to His loving kindness, to His covenant faithfulness toward us. Let us respond with love and to the praise of His glorious grace. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, so many temptations come up against us, especially in this age of social media and this technological age where understanding and knowledge are just at the tips of our fingers where we can so easily rely upon ourselves. I pray, Lord, that even through the storm, we may find that we are nothing. We are only dust. And so, Lord, we turn to You, looking to You, seeing that You, Lord, are worthy of all praise and glory and honor, not just because of what You've done for us, but simply because of who You are as God. You are worthy in and of yourself. Even if you did nothing for us, you would still be worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. So, Lord, I pray that as we look to Christ and as we are empowered by the Spirit, as we are reminded of our perfect law keeper who gives us his own righteousness, that we might, with hearts overflowing with gratitude, continue to love you above all things. And when we feel that temptation to give something else our complete and undivided attention, that we might, Lord, Look to Christ and forsake our idols. Pray, Lord, that you would help us in this because apart from you, we cannot. We love you, O Lord. We do praise you with all of our heart, 
all of our soul, all of our might. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.